All right, let's do this. How are you? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuckers? What the fuckologists? What the fuck is What the fuck Terrians? What is going on? I am Mark Marin. This is WTF. How are you? Today's guest is Dan Savage. The Dan Savage. Author, writer, podcaster, radio personality, gay man, uh, activist. He's the fucking best. And he hung out with me and we had a great talk. We're going to get to that in a second. Can I tell you what's going on with me? I will be at the Rochester Fringe Festival in Rochester, New York, Saturday, September 21st. Looking forward to that. Nate Bargetzi is opening for me, and I love to watch Nate work. I will be at the JFL Just for Laughs 42 in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, September 24th. I don't know if we're doing one or two shows. And Friday, October 4th, we're doing a live WTF at the LA Podcast Festival. Go to LAPodfest.com uh, to get see what those packages are. And I'm going to be doing, uh, I'll be up in San Francisco on the 16th doing uh, a live in conversation uh, with Adam Savage. He's going to be talking to me. I think we're going to be interviewing each other. I don't know. It's for City Arts. I believe it's what it's called. It's a benefit. Some fucking idiot on Twitter said, oh, $100 for tickets. Don't tell me you didn't have control of that Louis C.K. tours for 25. Well, first of all, I'm not getting paid anything. It's a fucking benefit. Idiots who think they know what they're talking about. Don't know what they see what the anger's doing. See what the anger just did. I have not tried the meds yet. I'm not comfortable with the Lamictal. So I tried the Propronal. Propronal. What, what is it? It's used to treat uh, high blood pressure. It's basically not a, den- a benzo. It's not an addictive thing. It's interesting. You take it uh, preemptively to, to ease your anxiety, and it's almost like it just uh, just turns it down a little bit. Something gets turned down. It's like, hey, I want to get mad, but you know, it's okay. There's no body buzz. There's no brain buzz. There's no shift in perception. Just a just a slight a, a slight kind of a drowsy muting of your equipment inside your head who knows if it can help me get through things learn how to communicate better not destroy it not to slash and burn the emotional forest if it can help me do that then we will get the work done folks bombed on stage the other night been a while since i did that that uh surprisingly uh surprisingly painful after 25 years so I go on stage. I'm, I'm starting to do some more sets in town. Putting it at the old comedy store. I went on Wednesday night. I went third up. I like going early so I can get some work done before they've been, you know, brain raped by a bunch of garbage jokes. Now I'm not saying that's bad. Just sometimes the level of crassness can, you know, do some damage in my mind. I just like to get them when they're when they're when they're fresh. Nine thirty spot though. It's about thirty or forty people. And I uh, went up there, guy before me did, nah, I did all right. And I went up there and I, you know, I, I was laid back because I wanted to try some new stuff and I was getting nothing. I was getting a vacuum. I was getting nothing but quiet judgment. I felt that feeling in my heart, the sinking of the heart, the, the palpable, palpable gut reaction of rejection, the warmth of failure spread throughout my body. So I did jokes that I know work. They didn't really work. I felt the pain, the pull, the sadness of failure. Jokes, the embarrassment 
the shame, all of it. I still feel those things when I don't do well up there. It had been a while since I tanked like that. Fucking just like, you know, doing jokes to nothing. Just dead faces, the few I could see. But it was interesting to me that that what I did feel, that what really feel like, you know, you talk to some people, it's like, and, and I, I think most comics, despite whatever they say, will go, look, it's part of the job. It happens. Yeah, it does happen, but it hurts. And it hurts me because I am so emotionally invested in every fucking set. I must, I got to have some sort of connection. My needs are deeper than the money or the laugh. It's just the way I, I'm wired. Tanked it. But the, the primary feeling I feel is embarrassment and shame. It's not just a pain of rejection. It's like, I just, I was just up in front of all those people and I failed. They looked at me like I was some sort of fucking amateur, like a sad man. It was awful. Did I have any control of that? I don't know. Back in the day, at another time in my life, I would have used that feeling. I would have used that experience as a mallet to beat the shit out of myself with for days. Like as soon as I didn't think about it, I'd be like, oh God, Wednesday night, Jesus Christ. That was fucking horrendous. And I just feel the warmth of failure and rejection and shame. But it went away in a couple of days and it's gone now. And that's good. That's progress. That's that fight or flight thing. That's the weird thing about fight or flight. And <laughs> when you're on stage tanking, it's like fight or flight kicks in, uh, but but they can happen at the same time. Your body's going to have to keep fighting, but boy, can you fly out of that body and wait outside and meet that guy in the lot. You can do them both at the same time. That is some, that's how highly evolved comedians are. We can fight or flight simultaneously on stage when we're bombing. Yep, we're up there fighting, but you're looking at a guy who has been abandoned by himself because that guy's got the car going out front. My point is I have grown. There was a time where I would have just been discombobulated for weeks, but I'm a, I'm a professional comedian and I can take it. You know, I, I got to say there's a caveat to this amazing emotional and psychological growth that I... I, it, it would, in the name of transparency, in the name of not keeping anything from you, I did go back to the comedy store to do a set on Saturday night. And uh, the manager there said that everyone got off stage on Wednesday and said that was the worst crowd they've ever seen in their fucking life that they've ever performed at. So that made me feel better. You know, I wasn't alone. I guess what I'm saying is I have no idea whether I've grown at all. I'm just happy that everybody else had a fucking horrible time. I just will have, I'm just happy we failed as a community for these fucking strangers who didn't do their part. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. There are bad audiences and oh yes, you can blame them. All right. So what do we got? We got Dan Savage, Dan Savage. What a great guy. And uh, what a, cl- a lot of clarity to this dude. His activism is personal and it's sharp. But we had a very nice conversation about, uh, you know, where he comes from, what he's about, his marriage, that kind of stuff. Let's talk to Dan Savage. What the fuck? 
So Dan Savage, you're here. People want us to talk. Did they you... do. <laughs> I, I read that on the Twitter. Isn't that weird? It I don't. Is. I guess it's not weird. I guess we both do this. Why shouldn't we talk? We both podcast. We both run our mouths. We both get in trouble. Yeah, I, I don't get in trouble as much as you. I don't think. <laughs> but you got me in trouble when we were on Mar together. How did I get you in trouble? You watched my. You got my back, which I appreciated. <laughs> and then you got the hit. You, you took the hit. You said you were gonna. You would hate fuck. Was it Sarah right. Palin or, or Michelle Bachman? It was Bachman. 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 I don't think I could. I, I don't think I could. I think if I hate fucked uh, Palin, she'd misunderstand it as a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I thought I can't leave him on that limb all by himself. Right. I, and I've offered that I would hate fuck Rick yeah. Santorum. Yeah. yeah. And now I that was all over the right wing Christian batshit blogs that I threatened to rape Rick Santorum. Yeah, you oh so you got see I But it would have been a consensual hate fucking. I can hate fuck somebody with their consent. I would never hate fuck somebody against No, them. right, right. It, you you agree that you don't like each other and you should use that that dynamic to to elevate the sexual experience. You plow that energy into plowing that energy. I yes, and I think that's a, a fairly common dynamic in relationships. Especially long-term ones. <laughs> you you got to get the juice from somewhere. That's right. Yeah. But yeah, I, I was sort of upset because I didn't even get named in the criticism. See, you already have a profile with the right wing. They just they just nailed him. They literally dismissed me on purpose, it felt like. Like, Bill Maher had a comedian on, but they still hung it on him. you know how they are. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But you got named, so you at least got the publicity. I jumped in front of a bullet for you, man. I appreciate it, man. You're so welcome. Well, now we're doing this. It's all going to work out. Where'd you come from? Uh, I'm from Chicago. Yeah, right in the city? Yeah, I grew up in, in Rogers Park, which is as far north and east oh, as I know you where can that go is. without going into the lake or the suburbs. Right. There's a, I performed at the Main Stage Theater, which I think is in Rogers Park. Yeah. Yeah, and I have a Rogers Park t-shirt. Yeah, Rogers Park is an awesome place to grow up. Well, what was it like? Uh, it was great. You know, I sort of grew up at the tail end of a certain way of white people living that white people didn't start stop living for a while. But I guess post Great Recession, we're living that way again. I grew up in a multi-gen household. My yeah. grandparents, my great grandparents owned this two flat, um, which is a Chicago term for an apartment building that right. just has two apartments in right. it and a flat roof, two flats. Yeah. And uh, my great grandparents raised their children in the downstairs apartment, and then my grandmother and her husband stayed in that building and raised their children, including my mother. And then my mother got married, and my father moved in. And so I grew up in this house full of my grandparents, and my aunts, and my uncles, and, and a great grandparent. Yeah, well, they, my great grandparents had moved out at that right. point, but they were around. And that's see that I think that was a great way to live. It was. It had its perks. Yeah, because like I remember, that's uh, you know one of the reasons why you know people stay where they are is so grandparents can babysit, which is as it should be. You think so? Well, yeah. When you're young, you know, Terry and I adopted. We, we yeah. had a son DJ, and we adopted yeah. him when Terry was 24, 25, and I was thirty two. Or thirty-three, yeah, and that time of life when you are, you know, sort of your most productive and energetic, right? Kids are boring, yeah, and an only <laughs> child is super boring because one of you always has to be the, pl- you know, the playmate of last resort, right? right. So if there's no other three-year-old around, right. one of you has to be a three-year-old, stand in, be three, yeah, and yeah. play with trucks, which. Yeah works if you're high and doesn't work if you're not and you're not supposed to be high when you have kids so it kind of doesn't work (laughs) and but so to have parents aunts and uncles people who are delighted to take that kid off their hands for a while right was beautiful and my mom didn't live in seattle when we were uh new parents but she would come out all the time and be the kind of working class irish grandparent that you want which she would take the baby and say you two go away and have fun and do something so she got it yeah she understood it from when she was younger she was the kind of grandparent that parents are happy to see because she would do the laundry and make dinner and right. take the kid off our hands. Gave and, her purpose. Yeah. And spread yeah, yeah, the love yeah. around. People out there, if you have 
children who have kids yeah. and you don't yeah. see much of your grandkids or your children with kids, yeah. it's because you're useless when you show up. You're, yeah. If you're a burden when you show up to your <laughs> yeah. children yeah. who have new children, yeah. they're yeah. not going to want you around. Right. If you show up and suddenly the laundry is done and dinner is made yeah. and you and your wife got to, oh, go, yeah. to go out. They'll bid you, build, uh, build you a room. They will. Yeah, will. Absolutely. absolutely. So what So what were your, how many siblings didn't have? What was the business? What was your dad doing? Uh, my dad was a Chicago cop. Really? Yeah. Busted heads at the 68 Democratic National Did Convention. Did he really? Absolutely. And oh then he became God. a homicide detective for about 10 years, which was weird for me when I came out to him when I told him that I was a, a, a big faggot. Um, yeah. Because, you know, he was a homicide cop in Area 6, Chicago, which was the gay neighborhood at the time. But this was the 60s and 70s when a gay neighborhood was, so was not a nice place. It was the, the freshly gay neighborhood, but it was a bad neighborhood yeah. and the gays came in. and no, 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 no. This was when gay neighborhoods were bad neighborhoods. Really? Why 60s. were they bad? Because they were kind of marginal places. They weren't like coffee shops and bookstores, and they weren't lovely. Well, what was the bad part? Like, uh, what were they? Well, gay bars and were shit were hardcore. dominated by the, the mob then. So gay neighborhoods were kind of rough places where gay people kind of dove in, right. had a little anonymous sex, and then went back to the wife or the rectory. So it was a cruising type of situation. It was like a, yeah. a like a secret place. Yeah. Like so, those bars, like what you saw in cruising or something. Uh, yeah, not as glamorous, not as hot, but <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it was specifically to, to sort of protect. It wasn't a gay neighborhood because people, gays, went there. It was a gay neighborhood because that's where they'd go that's where the to do their were, secret That's where the bathhouses right. were. It was just at the cusp where people started creating gayborhoods and gay right. communities right. And coming together in the north side of Chicago. So your dad worked those beats. Yeah, but Clark and Diversity um, was the intersection in the middle of his, you know, his beat, and they called it Clark and Perversy. Yeah, that's what the cops called it. <laughs> right. So when you came out to him, what was it? Why was it? Uh, what was the reaction? I, I, you know, he wasn't a cop anymore when I came out, and he he reacted fine. He was the last person I told. Why did um, Why did you wait? Because when I was 15, he divorced my mother. He left, and I was ready to come out when I was 15, which is really weird. Kids didn't come out at 15 in 1980 when I was 15. They, they didn't come out at all, really, did they? They came out after college. Right, right. Was kind when of the they were out of the house. And, yeah. and, and when, so he couldn't be kicked out of life. Right. And right. that still happens today. Kids are kicked out of the house when they come right. out or are out of their families. Uh, but my dad left my mom, and I was like, I couldn't go into my mom's bedroom and say, hey, yeah, you know, this will yeah. take your mind off the yeah. divorce. Yeah. Um, to my good Catholic parents. Yeah. So after my dad left, I didn't have to come out to him. He wasn't, wasn't, he wasn't around. And he was really homophobic when I was a kid. Like in the house. Yeah, but in this, you know, in the way that I want to like slam him for it, but I want to exonerate him at the same time, because this is what good parents thought they had to do then. They thought gay was something that grew in your child, like a, like an inclination they or were, cancer, and you could nudge them and they wouldn't go gay. So he would say shitty things about gay people why, you because he, he cared about me. And he felt he, it. Yeah. Oh, my God. I, when I was 13 years old, I begged my parents, all I wanted for my birthday, yeah. tickets to the national tour of a chorus line. <laughs> And these motherfuckers were shocked when I came out. It's like I practically, that was like, that's like seeing your 13-year-old son give a blowjob and you're shocked when he comes out. I want tickets to national, I want tickets to a chorus line for my birthday, it's all I want. But they don't, but I think there's a denial in place that like they may know, but they don't want to know. Right. And that's a powerful thing. And this was 30 years ago. When right. Good, loving, you know, literally this is when being gay was the worst thing you could think of someone. Right. So you didn't think that about your own child, no matter how much evidence was staring you in the face. But it wasn't because I think now hasn't it evolved that even if there is an accepting and tolerant household, they're, they're still, I think, if they're empathetic parents, they feel that that lifestyle is going to be a horrendous struggle. And and they're worried about it. Less so. Uh-huh. It used to be that parents would think, it's a, that lifestyle is going to be a horrendous struggle, so I'm going to do everything I can to prevent my child from becoming gay. Right. Which, you know, for my father meant 
you know, saying shitty things about gay people to try to convince me not to be gay, not to choose to be gay. Like what kind of and, things? But now parents know, I think, that you can't prevent your child from being gay, so right. you're going to have to... The, the problem isn't that your child is gay. The problem is the way some people are going to treat your child because your child is gay, and the focus has shifted from you know, making the gay children the problem to making assholes like Rick Santorum and Tony Perkins the problem. Right, right. So what, what, like, what would your father say? I, I have this really distinct memory of him praising Anita Bryant. This is ancient history, right? She was <laughs> right, right. this anti-gay crusader, the right. very first really high-profile one, and saying that gay people were a threat to uh, civilization, right. to uh, threat to what? The, the family? Uh-huh. To the economy. That was his argument. We were a threat to the economy because gay people didn't settle down. And, you know, in his experience, gay people, they didn't get married. They didn't have families. Mm-hmm. So they didn't buy cars and houses and washing machines. And so GE would run out of money and the economy would collapse. That was his wow. theory. That and, of course, we didn't get married or have families because you wouldn't let us. Right. And As opposed to we didn't want to. We wanted to, but we couldn't. Yeah. And, I, you know, I, and all I, and ironically, of his four children, I'm the only one, I think, who's bought a new washing machine in his well, entire well, life. Well, that's the ironic thing about that whole that whole idea of the economic idea of gay, of gay people is wrong. I mean, you know, uh, gay men drive a lot of the economy. We shop. <laughs> yeah. Gay, gay men without children shop. Yeah, because you have money. They, yeah, that's what's so funny about my father's opposition to, you know, the gay lifestyle was, that so what, was this hedonistic anti-family thing. And also, uh, well, having, you know, you know, sort of walked the beats that he was walking and his limited perception, right. it must have been a little... He'd encountered a lot of gay murderers and murder victims by the time I was... But he was really seeing it in me, seeing that I was gay. Really? Mm-hmm. And so when you came out to him, what was uh, the first reaction? He apologized. For he, that? For- he, he apologized for anything he might have said or done that made me feel uncomfortable. Uh, and, and, you know, he was the last one I came out to in the entire family, which was easy because he'd moved away. He'd moved to California. Well, how many were there that you had to... Did you have to make the rounds? Were you... <laughs> well, you make a my, list? And- my mom has six siblings. My dad has eight. Oh I have three siblings. Uh, everybody... Be- there's eight million cousins. Everybody lived pretty much uh, pretty close to... Home base in Rogers Park or nearby. So you just kind of made the rounds. You kind of, I got to go, got to stop by this house. And a lot of people to tell when I started coming out. And I did that shitty thing that some people do when you come out. Like I told my mother and told her not to tell my father. Right. And then my mom and dad came to see me act in a play because I was doing plays then where I got married. There's a yeah. wedding scene for yeah. my character in this right. play. And it was a comedy. And my mother is bawling her eyes out because yeah. she thinks Danny's never going to get married. Right. This is the saddest thing I've ever seen. Uh-huh. And my father's like, what? is wrong and she can't tell him so i really didn't come out to my mother i dragged my mother into the closet with me right and i did that for about a year and then she was like we can't keep doing this and you've got to start telling more people and <laughs> you, you, your mother's telling you we got to stop meeting like this yeah. <laughs> yeah and my sibs i came out to my siblings and then you know my mother basically told all my aunts and uncles and there was some there were problems people, really uh yeah like i had one uncle say that um he would never speak to me again or be in the same room with me again and my mother was great. My mother did that hold up? No. Oh my god, no. Yeah, no, he's great now. And yeah, he loves me. And uh, but you know, then th- that was the importance of actually of having a big family it was really helpful then because maybe for a little five minutes it turned into two warring tribes like on my side and against me, and the on my side tribe utterly defeated the against me right. side. But also, the, and my I, mother went to her brother and said, went to everybody and said, if you have a problem with Danny, you have a much bigger problem with me. Got really? It? Yeah. And my mom was tough that way. But wasn't the reaction, do you think, that not so much... It, it was their own fear, right? I mean, you're still the kid they always knew. They just all of a sudden have to see you in a way that they're not accustomed to or comfortable with. Yeah, they and have they, to picture you with a dick in your ass. Right. And, and or I your to, mouth. Or, right. I mean, and I hate to be crude, but that's it. Like, you tell your parents... You, you, when you're straight, people yeah. don't see you having sex. Yeah. <laughs> Coming out to my mom and dad meant 
burdening them with a mental image. I could see it on their face. Like you tell them you're gay and they're like, oh, there they're like picturing is. a dick yeah. going in your mouth. Yeah. <clears throat> and when my sister had a boyfriend, they didn't picture her giving blowjobs. Yeah. It was just a given. It was, yeah, she's straight. She <laughs> yeah, has a boyfriend. There's probably something going on, but I don't have to think about it because their relationship <laughs> could be about dating and marriage and family and a future. It's about so much more than the blowjobs. Right. Right. But if you're a gay kid in the 80s, your relationship isn't about marriage. It isn't about family. It isn't about a future. It's about a blowjob. Right. It's about sex only. And that was, but and, and that was a limited perception of, of straight people, and, and still is to a certain degree initially, but not so much now. But in terms of how the the gay community evolved, I mean, they sort of had to lean on that in order to build community in a way initially. We had to lean on the sex aspect. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, there's this great sort of explosion uh, in the gay community after the Stonewall riots, right. where this just this sex culture took off, and it was very male dominated, very male oriented. You know. People say, why are gay men like this? Why do gay men right. have bathhouses and go to parks and have sex? Gay men do everything straight men would do if straight men could do it, but straight men can't because women won't. <laughs> it's not that straight men are particularly virtuous. If I told straight guys, there is this park. It is yeah. full of women. Some yeah. of them are really hot. Some yeah. of them are 18 years old and yeah. hot. Yeah. And they want to fuck you. Yeah. And they don't want to know your name. And they don't want your phone number. And they never want to see you again. And you just go to the park. That park would have every straight man in America would be in that park. <laughs> Right? I mean, right. not every, but a right. lot. Right. Not every gay man goes to the park. I've never had sex in a bathhouse or a park. Um, why? But because it was too... Well, why? You're the age. You could have. Because wasn't the one bag. thing that I had that, that probably saved my life uh, during the HIV epidemic yeah. is that some gay men don't have that I have is a kind of a well-developed sense of cooties. Yeah. I wouldn't share a can of Coke with my sister. I'm not going to put a dick in my mouth that's been in like yeah. 40 other mouths yeah. that day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that kind of rampant, crazy bathhouse sex. Right, right. But, you know... Getting back to my point, like straight guys would do that. Yeah. A, a bathhouse is a whorehouse staffed by volunteers. Right. And there's no parallel in straight land. But if there was one, straight guys would go. Oh, yeah. I think they would. <laughs> yeah, they would. And so, so what you saw in the 70s was this kind of very, this excessive kind of totally male uh, idea of sex and the way sex could work if it was just a male construction. It was male sexuality, totally un. Unen unencumbered in but, any way, but, and with disastrous consequences. This right. Was, this was sort of biologically unsustainable, this level of promiscuity and multi-partnerism. Yeah, because, you know, bacteria wins all wars. Right. Eventually. And now we know that uh, hitherto-for unknown fatal sexually transmitted infection can emerge. Right. That was an unknown consequence right. in the 60s and 70s. Now it's a known known, as Donald Rumsfeld might say, and we have to... You know, adjust accordingly. Gay people, we gay men, we have to have less sex than we can. Straight people should have more sex than they do, and somewhere there's a balance. Right, but the the idea that the identity of, of gay people in those times when they were, when the communities were being built, mm -hmm. you know, was you know we need to celebrate and be as out as possible, over the top even, in order to to get our territory here. A little bit, you know, a lot of people participated in that. Uh, craze thing. We're like really out, really proud, really active. There was a political aspect to this. You know, this had always we'd been punished for this. We'd been imprisoned for this, lobotomized for this, marginalized for this, for the sexual expression. Right. So we're going to celebrate it, and we're going to we're going to fuck the fucking fucking shit out of this fucking. We're going to yeah yeah we're going to fuck be it fucking up. Fucking pros. Yeah. Um, but there are a lot of people who were driven to that by shame. You know, bathhouses really facilitated the closet. The deal the culture made was you cannot be out. There's this park. Yeah, yeah. Right. Or there's this one bathhouse. Can't tell anybody you work with or your family right. or your wife. We will turn a blind eye. So long right. as you're only doing this gay shit in one of these two places right. in Chicago. In the neighborhood your right. father police. Get married, settle down, find yeah. some sad woman and lie to her all your life, hope you don't get caught. 
uh, and go to these places to get your gay rocks off. We know you exist. We've made this this allowance, and we know That's who you it. are in the in the in the sort of uh, the the league, the world of power. And I mean, all these people knew, right? You know, but they were just sort of like, yeah, he does right. that. But you, you know. had to pay lip service to the dominant culture, which was homophobic, and say you were straight, and then you could pay lip service to some dude in a bathhouse, so long as you didn't know each other's names, didn't date, didn't fall in love, didn't right. disrupt. The lie the culture was telling itself, which is that gay people didn't exist. The Iranian lie. The, the President Iran comes up. We don't have gay people in Iran. Right. That was Eisenhower could have said the same thing. Right. The well, what what gave you the fortitude or the comfort to to sort of come out as young as you did in the era that you lived in? Oh God, I don't know. Um, people were coming out. I saw. I grew up in Chicago. That was such a benefit because yeah. there was a gay neighborhood that was emerging in Chicago, Boys Town, and so I would see gay people around sometimes. Right. Um, and I would think they look happy. And, yeah, despite whatever yeah. pressures there were in the world. And I credit my Catholicism. I had been raised not to lie to my parents. I had been raised... But were you not also raised not to suck dick? I was. These things were in conflict. <laughs> and one or the other had to go. I could I could lie to my parents. <laughs> yeah. Or I could suck dick. But right. I couldn't do both. Right. And so I was. Uh, I prioritized sucking dick over lying to my parents. Well, I think that was probably the right choice. I do, too. <laughs> Like that. that was actually the good semen, part. Semen is a natural antidepressant. There are antidepressant qualities in semen. That's why I'm such a That's happy-go-lucky it, guy, no matter what the religious That is not true, is it? Uh, you just it made is. that no, up. No, no, it's Googling. You're not, you're not talking metaphorically here, because metaphorically, I think that on a lot of levels, the idea of what religion tells us, you know, what you chose was the right way to go for your own self well, and for just, everybody else's. I saw through it. Right. You know, religion, my sexuality brought me into conflict with my faith, and my faith collapsed, not because I was just a hedonist who prioritized boners over God, but because I looked at religion and thought, you know, no, this is, the, you know, religion, whether you're straight or gay, inserts itself into your sex life uh, and into that conflict, that internal conflict that is your sex life, and says, oh, we can, we can mediate this with God. We can intervene here for your sexual sins. And we've defined everything about human sexuality that happens as a sin. And you're going to go to hell unless we're there to. Right. Well, that was the, that was the, the, the brilliance of those who wanted to control others in writing that shit. If you can get into somebody's (laughs) head about their sexuality, you can control them. them. Yeah, completely. So did you, do you have any priest in your family? Uh, no. And it was a huge Catholic family. That's bizarre. It was a big, I have a, I had a nun, uh, for an aunt, a great aunt. And I went to the seminary. I was thinking about being a priest. No, a preparatory seminary. I went to a high school for boys thinking about... Did all your kids. siblings go to that? No, just me. How many... What are your other siblings? Uh, two older brothers and a younger sister. You, But you went on purpose? Yeah. You decided to do that? Yeah. I Well... I decided to do that when I was 14 yeah, because knew- I thought, I knew I was a fag, but I thought I can never come out. It'll kill my parents. And literally at that age, I was thinking, okay, I'm the good one. I'm the good goody two shoes mama's boy. Yeah. It'll kill my parents if I, if they find out I'm gay. So I should probably kill myself because it'd be easier for them to have a dead kid than a gay kid. That's literally what I was thinking when I was 14. I thought, no, I'll, I'll be a priest, and then I never can come out. And I can live in a big house and wear dresses. Yeah, but but when you went to... But that's interesting to me, because I've always had this, this weird theory that Catholic communities pushed met boys who were leaning into homosexuality into the priesthood to save them. And Catholic boys who were gay fled to the priesthood because it not only gave you you know, an out from having a, a marriage and having, you know, a big Catholic family of your own. Right. It was an honorable out. It's like, oh, I would totally love to fuck women and have a lot of babies. I totally love to eat a lot of pussy, but I've been called to the priesthood. And it was, that's why you, there are so many, you know, some estimates are 50, 75% of all Catholic priests are 
are gay we're, men. That's why the the church is so conflicted and tortured and effed up. But did, when you went in, though, was it? Did you think you would cure yourself, or did you think? No, you would I thought it was a good closet. Thought it was a good. Really? Yeah, it was a closet with stained glass windows. So that's interesting because I thought that maybe the guilt ran so deep in many people that they went into the priesthood to try to stop the behavior. No, I wasn't behaving yet. I was fourteen. Right. I was just wanting. So you thought, like, if I could get in there, I could, you know, I could get. I can what hide I want. out all my life. I won't have to have <laughs> sex with some. I won't have to lie to some woman all my life. Well, what is your? I, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't really do much politics in here, but I think that uh, that your, the opinion or the intelligence behind how you would assess the 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 sort of downfall of the church along these lines along the pedophilia how much of that had to do with repression oh a lot a lot of it had to do with repression and, and it wasn't just gay men who would flee to the church or flee to the priesthood to hide out yeah other people with like hugely effed up desires right. might think well here's celibacy here's control here's a life and so I'm going to go there and then oh and here are all these children so you know if you fled into the priesthood because you were a gay man you're probably not going to rape children there's a difference between right. being no, of course, homosexual of course. and a yeah, pedophile. Yeah, yeah. Um, but if you fled into the priesthood because your sexuality was so dark and disturbing and effed up and you were a pedophile and you thought, I'm just going to shut this off and shut this, shut myself down sexually and go hide out in the church. Well, I'm going to try to, you know, out of shame, you know, pull myself out of the loop. And then here are all these kids. It's fucking, it, it, to me, that's a... It, well, it's a, the church is so effed up about sexuality. You can say fuck here. The church is so fucked up about sexuality. <laughs> fuck, fuck. I said fuck a lot already. I know, I know. I'm just I'm trying to mix you. it up. I'm just telling you. I say no, fuck you, too much. People always t- tell me I say fuck too much. But do you, uh, but you, uh, are you still on regular radio or only the podcast? Uh, only the podcast. Oh, okay, so you can say fuck all you want. Yeah, I say fuck a lot on my podcast. So where now? So you go to the seminary school, and, and what was the experience? I mean, did you what what made you go like, nah, I can't do this? Well, you know, I picked it in eighth grade, and I yeah. went, and then. You know, I was there for a year. And you bought it. You bought Catholicism. I did buy Catholicism. You believed in Jesus. And people were mean. And it was just, it was, it was a little bit like when I was in the Boy Scouts. Yeah. Everybody was supposed to be good to each right, other. Right, right. And everybody was, every kid was a brat and an asshole. And I yeah, thought, well, yeah. this is bullshit. Yeah. No one's living up to the ideals right. of the Boy Scouts. Right. No one's teaching me how to tie knots. And so I had the same kind of reaction in the seminary. Like, all these people are shits and not good Christians. Right. And, and it was just a horrible place. And I was a shit too. You know, I was a freshman in high school who's not when did you have the first uh, experience with men uh well it depends I, well, I, you know the first real one when well you... no actually it's it's complicated Mark. really because i lost my virginity in a three-way with a guy and a girl oh okay wait how'd you how old were you then 15 and they were in their 20s oh really so i was raped yeah. <laughs> by a woman right technically it was statutory rape i was totally uh down with it um, well, how did that... but, but if the the, the the haters, people who hate gay people say, oh, you're seduced into it, you were raped by somebody. Oh, so it's this like, is why you're gay. No, no, they say if you're, you know, you have been raped by a man, that makes you gay. Well, like, I was, my first sexual experience with a woman and it was rape. How did that unfold? You're a 15 year old kid and the, you met these college kids or what? Um, you know, it was a camping trip. It was my brother's ex-girlfriend uh, and some guy she was messing around with huh. and they approached me and it happened. Um, what happened? Um, <laughs> well, come on. I've written about this. I don't know why it's so hard to talk about it. Um, he, he had sex with her and then I had sex with her. So my first was sloppy seconds. And you watched. I watched him do it and thought, okay, I can do that. And I had to, you know, I had to close my eyes and pretend she was Leif Garrett or Andy Gibb. Did you really? Yeah, a little bit. And I couldn't, this is what's so, what's so I couldn't touch him because I was, I knew I was gay and I thought if I touch him, he's going to realize I'm gay and he's going to stop what he's doing and kill me. Right, he'll like stop what he's doing and beat me up. Right, because I saw him naked right. and fucking, and I was 
you know, fucking her, and it was taking a while because it's hard to pretend that yeah. she's Andy Gibb with her head on backwards but or whatever. But you still can feel it. It feels good still. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I was, like, not quite getting there, and at one point he reached between my legs and just started playing with my balls, and yeah. I was there. <laughs> That really did the trick. Yeah. And, I, and it's just such closet case that thinking. That's what you were missing. Yeah. <laughs> it was such closet case thinking. I thought, oh, yeah. he can touch me because he knows he's straight. Right. But if I touch him, he'll know I'm gay. Right. That's and crazy. kill me. Right. And that's the sort of like shit that goes on in a kid's head when they're in the closet. Like you're always like worried about who can tell and how much you're giving away and whether yeah. you're going to get busted and murdered. Yeah. Well, I ended up in a couple of threesomes in college with a guy who I was friends with who was just had much more game than me. Mm-hmm. And we were really good friends, and he had a lot more sexual confidence. So we ended up in these, you know, like two or three threesomes where I would just end up, you know, watching him fuck and then, you know, doing it next and not doing, you know, very well. And it's all very quick. But we didn't really engage, you know, but it was just sort of like I was sort of using him as my stand in dick in a way. Like, well, if I'm with him, he's going to, you know, pave the way. And That's I can awesome. get it. You're very it. highly evolved. A lot, I get a letters from a, a lot of the time from straight guys, straight young men, college age guys who cannot do that. Yeah, they they want their girlfriend to have a girl girl boy three way. Yeah, two women with that's them. a lot of pressure. And the girl's like, okay, I'll do that when we can have a boy boy, right? Me three way, right? He can't do it because he's afraid that being in a room with another guy with a hard dick is gonna poof make him gay. Yeah, really? Yeah. Do you think that people are either all gay or, or half gay, or how does it like? Is it real bisexuality? I mean, I know oh, yeah, you have abs- conversa- conversations about this. Absolutely, bisexuality definitely exists. Uh, I think, you know, I had sex with girls and I I was that, able to perform. But that first more one didn't once. sound good. Uh, no, it wasn't. It was it was okay. If you're out there listening, it was great. I yeah, loved it. Yeah. Thank you so much, wherever you are now. Um, and it totally yeah, threw my family off the scent for a few years. That was the point of it. Like, right. well, my mother is going to think I'm What, straight. you told your family out of threesome I made with your sure sister's they, ex-girlfriend? I made my brother, brother's ex-girlfriend? I made sure they found out. Not that I would tell them, but that like the info. Right, right. Because that was the point. Yeah. And my brother found out he was mad, and then he had to, had to forgive me like his straight older brother would. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, people are hetero- I think people are a little flexible around the edges. You know, every once in a while, I see uh, a woman that I'm like, yeah, zing. Like, yeah, yeah. I kind of like feel something. And it's almost invariably a lesbian firefighter. Like, it's yeah. <laughs> a, a, a lesbian who looks like a guy, right? Muscles and looks like Rolf from The Sound of Music, but yeah, is a you woman. Like that, huh? Yeah, yeah, I like that. I like yeah. I like swishy guys. Yeah. Every once in a while, I see a lesbian who like blings onto my my sex dar. Right? Yeah, yeah. And when that happens, I don't think, oh my god, I must really be straight. I don't have this panic attack. But straight guys, when they see the one dude who pings onto their sex dar, yeah, suddenly have this panic attack about what it must mean. Maybe I'm not really straight. Doesn't matter how much pussy I've eaten. Doesn't right, matter right. how much. Pussy, I've pounded. Angrily pounded. You know, that I've met the one guy that I could be sexual with who who just like kind of attracted me because they vibed in a way that worked for me, the kind of types I'm attracted to. Those guys write me every day having just flat out panic attacks that they must be gay. Well, they don't want to make the big shift in lifestyle. I I think it's more- They don't have to. (laughs) It's not required. I, I feel sorry it? for you, straight guys. I really yeah. do. <laughs> Why? Because we're carrying this burden Cause, of, of, cause, of, uh, of attitude and... and and Because uh, you run the world, yeah. which sounds glamorous, but that includes the 7 I think there's some gays running the world. A few running... Well, the Vatican. It's yeah, a state. the, the Vatican. But I think there's some still some closet cases in high positions that... <laughs> no doubt. Yeah. <laughs> but you're less free sexually than everybody else. Like, I'm a gay dude. I could leave your garage and go have sex with a woman yeah. and nobody's going to think I'm straight now. Right. right? 
Except maybe that woman, if you're not honest with her. Yeah, but everyone will think, oh, that w- that must have been crazy. That yeah. fag savage fucked a woman. I wonder what that was about. No one's going to say, Dan Savage isn't a fag. He right. fucked a woman. Yeah. Uh, and so and gay dudes ang- are- really angry guys who go, that fag's fucking our women. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the whole point of us accepting them was more women for us. And yeah. now- They're fucking our women too. But, but women can do whatever they want. They yeah. can eat pussy at college and, and then be straight identified. And that's nobody true. says, you're that's not true. straight. Right. But straight guys- Suck are like one in dick in college. Time. That's it. Right. Yeah. You're trapped. Yeah. And it's not a prison of your own construction solely because straight women, when they find out that their husbands or boyfriends had one same sex encounter, write me, panic that it must mean he's gay. And gay guys, you know, if we found out that some hot movie star had had one same sex relationship or encounter, we would all insist that he had to be gay. Couldn't do that if he weren't gay. Why do you think that is? I don't know, but it's sad for straight guys. I, I didn't like straight guys when I started writing a sex advice column. Right. And I started feeling so sorry for straight guys after yeah, about two yeah. years of reading their reading their letters and how sort of Because they have to honor this paradigm. Right. That they have to that being a straight male somehow, after gay people started coming out of the closet, became defined as you know, not, nothing positive. If you're a straight guy, you are not a fag and you are not a girl. So that if there's anything girly or gay that intrigues you or interests you it can undermine your heterosexual bona fides with other straight people other straight guys right and it induces a kind of paranoia in straight guys right they're not sort of comfortably straight and not all of them you know individual results may vary um but they're sort of paranoid they are i used to pretend to be straight when i was 15 years old sure and, and and really try to perform straight and i see so many straight guys who are adults who are still doing that still trying to convince the world that they're straight nobody walks around once they're out of the closet and gay going i've got to convince everybody yeah i have to walk this very careful line with my you know playing gay so that nobody thinks i'm not gay <laughs> but straight guys have to walk this line all their lives well i think that part of it is that they're, they're that the reason why the two females one dude thing or, or or women you know having sex with each other for the, the the enjoyment of men that's all part of the male paradigm the straight paradigm mm-hmm. but like there's no i don't know how many women like, I think it would be different if there were women who fantasized about watching a couple of guys fuck. They're out there. Yeah, I know, but they're not the, the, the mass. They're not the majority. That's true. But all the slash fiction, which features male-male characters getting it on, is written by and for women predominantly. And there's a lot more women consuming gay pornography than there used to be. But uh, they are, it's still a minority, I think, among women, whereas... Right. I think it's a truism that almost all straight guys dig a little lesbian porn. So, wait, so how many uh, women did you have sex with? Oh, four, three, yeah, three or four or five. I don't remember. And how did those like how, just for just out of personal interest, and we're talking about you. I mean, how did those play out? The first one, you needed a, a little reach around from a dude, <laughs> a little help. Uh huh. And so the second one, but what, you know, that first time when you lose your virginity, there's that first time you think you're worried. Can I do this? Can I do this? Whether you're fucking what you want to be fucking or not. My first time was horrible. Was it? What happened? Well, my like you're, I had a tremendous, I was alone. When no, yeah. Well, no, yeah. <laughs> No, I uh, like I was completely panicked. I saw pornography at a very young age, and it mm. really fucked my brain up in the way that like what performance meant, what had to be done. You know, like I, I had a lot of anxiety around performance before I performed at all. So there was no real innocence to it because I'd sort of been brain raped by porn. Mm-hmm. So I brought a lot of anxiety to it. So all I knew was that I had to do this thing. So there was like, I was all up in my head and it took a long time to actually get it up and then to get it in. And then it was over very quickly and I was ashamed immediately. Oh. 
Yeah. I'm sorry. It's okay, man. I'm I, okay. I wish I'd been there to cup your balls <laughs> yeah, for I you wish to make if you feel you, better. If you might have been there to grab my balls <laughs> around the back, I would have had a different life. I would, the fight wouldn't just have been think. so hard. Yeah. But uh, yeah, and then there was like just a series. It took me a while to get, to relax enough to deal with it, just mm-hmm. to deal with the act of sex. A lot of premature ejaculating. I was very good at that. People have, it requires practice. You know, one of the burdens on, we talk about slut shaming girls and it's a real problem and- You talk about what? Slut shaming of girls and a lot of the pressure that's on girls sexually to be, you know, as voluptuous and seemingly available, but chaste at the same time. And it puts the zap on their heads. But there's also a zap that is on boys' heads, which is sex is your job and you have to be good at it. It's like burden of mastery. Right, right. The first time you do it, you have to sort of execute this quadruple backflip double jump thing perfectly- and that's a lot of anxiety-inducing yeah. pressure. We have to give people permission, and I do all the time when I talk to young people, permission to really be bad at it at first. Well, you have to be. I mean, like, I don't think I knew about vaginal orgasms until it was within the last decade, and I'm 49. Like, I never really got that there was there was two kinds. And not because I'm some in denial. There or aren't cl- two kinds. Well, no, but there are girls that can come from just having sex mm-hmm. without clitoral stimulation. Mm-mm. Yes, there are. Mm-mm. I've I've had them. Mm-mm. They're lying to me. No, here's the paradox. Um, there's no such thing as a vaginal orgasm. Uh, all orgasms, all female orgasms are, are, are clitoral. It's just that some women, because of the position of their clitoris, the angle of the clitoris, where the clitoral roots are, her clitoral shaft is positioned, they get enough clitoral stimulation from vaginal intercourse because of so it's a deeper clitoral stimulation so the g-spot is just an extension no, it's, of not the, a, it's not a g-spot thing that's a whole other thing that's the female prostate which is a whole other thing that's what i'm talking about but the <laughs> what about that well that's also a thing if you're stimulating if you're hitting the g-spot you can have an orgasm there yeah you can have an orgasm that's what there. i'm talking about okay well that's different well i didn't know i'm not a professional <laughs> I'm just saying, like, I didn't know about the G-spot uh, female prostate orgasm until within Which the last 10 years. Which often induces female ejaculation. Right. Not, I've had a little experience with that, and I'm still on the fence as to what that is exactly. Well, they've studied it chemically, and it closely resembles prostate fluid. Really? Seminal fluid. Yeah, it's not urine. But there are some women out there that just, they'll just pee because- yes, there are, because, <laughs> because it became such a thing in porn that yeah. some actresses learned to sort of- ape what it looks so like. So now I have, I'm now I'm feeling insecure. I know that's what I was talking about was that the, the G-spot The G-spot or, orgasm that, and the I didn't, female prostate. But yeah. that still involves a lot of clitoral stimulation. Sure, sure. But the people are like, I can, you know, my girlfriend can come from just vaginal penetration. Right. I don't have to do anything to her clit. No, you're doing something to her clit no, I get while that. you're penetrating well, no, I'm vaginally. Complete, I'm, I'm fairly adept at that. Awesome. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah, thank you. And now. <laughs> you're much better. You, don't you wish you could tell your teenage self losing his virginity? You're going to get better at this. It gets better. Dude, it took it really took a, a, a woman who was, you know, aggressively sort of like, you know, don't fucking come. If you fucking come, I'm going to be mad. That's hot. Yeah. How yeah. hot is that? It was pretty great. And I, you know, I, I still talk to her. <laughs> that was like, yeah, we're, we're friends. Uh, but it was like angry. It wasn't. I hope like she texts like, you every once in a while, just randomly in the middle of the day. Yeah. Don't fucking come. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, she doesn't. She says, "Don't write about me in your book." <laughs> I'm in. A, I'm, I'm in a thing, and I don't want that out there right now because I wrote about her in my first book, and oh, it was all. Funny. But it was all sort of very, you know, like thank God that she came into my life. But she was like, "Well, look, I'm in a thing right now, and I don't know if the dude that I'm with can handle what you." <laughs> you know, so why don't we? You know, secrets are secrets, right? I, I wrote about the woman that I lost my virginity to yeah. and that relationship, and yeah. what I learned about myself in that relationship. Yeah. This book, what I learned from women who dumped me, because she eventually dumped me. Uh, and sometimes I think, God, I wonder if she saw it. I wonder if she read it. Or, yeah. God, I hope not. Yeah. Because I didn't say very flattering things. About but her you, vagina. you dated a woman. 
Yeah, I dated a few. Well, I was a teenager. Right. In Chicago, it was the, it was the 80s. It so was you knew you were gay. You had this one thing where the guy squeezed your balls and that was good. And then you went on to date. <laughs> a couple other girls, yeah. For long periods of time? Uh, months at a time. And then, but you know, I thought, I thought at the time I could never come out. I thought I would have to, you know, live a double life. And right. maybe have sex with guys on the side, but I would have to have a girlfriend or a wife because if I ever told my family... They would kill me. Right. And so I thought being out wasn't possible for me. And then that all played, you know, by the time I was 17, I was like done with that. So, so like okay. So you were basically, you know, sort of like you accepted the the paradigm at the time, which was like, I'm gay. I got to figure out how to fuck a woman uh, well enough to keep one in the dark for the rest of my life. Right. And then I'll go live this other life. And right. that's just the way it is. Huh. And I came around. And you were aware quick. of that. Yeah. And I came, but I came around pretty quick and thought, I'm not going to live like this. That uh, This is not what I want. I don't want. Because you thought it was unfair? Because I thought it was living... unfair to her. I thought it was unfair to me. I didn't think I could lie successfully all my life. Yeah. I didn't want those kinds of relationships, uh, sexual relationships with men. I didn't want to have sex in the park or the bookstore or the bathhouse. Right, right, right. With anonymous dudes. I, I wanted... I wanted a husband. I wanted yeah. a relationship. I'm kind of sentimental and romantic. Yeah. And what I saw when I first, you know, started hanging out with some gay dudes when I came out as bi for five minutes, what I saw of that- <laughs> What was that? Before you came out as gay, you came yeah, out as bi? Yeah. A, a lot of people will briefly identify as bi before they come out as gay, which doesn't mean that bi people don't exist. These are gay people who are creating this impression that bi is this transitory phase that some people go through. Yeah. Bi identity is a transitory phase for a lot of gays and lesbians, not for bi people. It's not, right. trans, it's not a phase for them. But a lot of, you know, telling my friends I was bi meant I hadn't gone completely over to the dark side. Right. It wasn't right. some fag. You're, you're right. You're still kind of cool. Right. I could, yeah. you know, I was David Bowie-ish right, as right. opposed to- yeah. Liberace-ish, yeah, yeah, yeah. since he's back in the news. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but, but the, you know, it took two... Yeah, you know, I started hanging out with some gay dudes, and they would say, this is how baths work, how parks work. I was just like, oh, my God, that sounds so awful. And and dehumanizing. And I just ne never could tap into it. It's, like you said, it's probably good. Yeah, it was 1981. I'd be dead if I had been like, yay, yippee, bathhouses. I'm 18. Let's go. Well, I had a professor that was, you know, really, you know, into me. And he was, uh, you know, a big gay guy, full on, you know, Stonewall, New York, older than us, mm -hmm. you know, bathhouses, all of that shit, you know, you know, captain's hats. You and know, and a lot of guys and... thought that was the revolution. Suck, you know, but I was fascinated by the freedom of the disposition that he had around sex. Like I would listen to him tell these stories, though he was trying to seduce me. I, I was completely compelled by this lifestyle that had no shame around it and and you were able to sort of live out and act out I'm not a fetishist but just the the weird audacity mm -hmm. of gay sex on that level was fascinating to me you can have audacious fun crazy kinky nutty gay sex without going to a bathhouse without going to a bathhouse <laughs> yeah. and you can have that in the context of a relationship sure. I do in the context you, you know, do my husband yeah, yeah. we we swing from chandeliers and yeah. shit. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and it's a ball, and it's fun. It, it, you know, I had a really good friend years ago, um, and we used to get together, uh, you know, have lunch on Monday and tell our stories to each other of the weekend. Right. And he would tell me his stories, and I would be appalled. And all his stories were basically vanilla gay sex, but with a million dudes in crazy places. Sure. Like giving a million blowjobs yeah. and getting fucked in the park. Yeah. But just like butt-fucking and oral sex. Like, yeah. it's just gay vanilla. Yeah. And then I would tell him what I had done that weekend with my one true love, yeah. and he would be appalled because <laughs> we were doing this crazy shit. <laughs> well, uh, that, 
But that's interesting because that, you know, the, the way you're approaching it requires a type of trust and intimacy and the ability to feel comfortable to do that and wake up with each other the next day and have breakfast and then, you know, go to bed with each other the next night and, and not some, do that. Some people can't do that. So a lot of straight guys that. can't do that. That Madonna Horth problem that so many straight guys have. That they don't want to have crazy sex with the, the mother of their children, with somebody that they love. They want to do that with somebody that they look down on. Or don't, somebody, or are not connected to. Or they're not never going to see again. Right. Because... To do crazy, fun, kinky shit, crazy stuff, yeah. and then have to look that person in the eye right. at dinner with your parents yeah. or whatever, some people can't clear that bar. They, but, they, don't, they don't want someone to know their secrets, actually, right. that they have to de- interact with all the time. Right. So they compartmentalize their sex life into normal and good and wholesome sex with the wife or girlfriend and this shit that I do when I get to go to Thailand with a million people. Yeah, but I also think there's an issue now that like that I'm curious about in that you, I think there's a comfort level that's achieved by status quo uh, you know, in a, in a relationship where it's not so much a Madonna horror thing, but it's just sort of the friendship starts to overtake or the comfortability or just the predictability of the situation yeah. overtakes your, your drive to, to be well, wild. We know what that's about, which is, well, not necessarily by wild, but just be wild for each other. Right. When you when a relationship starts, there are all these obstacles that you have to overcome yeah. to get in their pants. Do they like me? Do they yeah, not like yeah, me? Yeah. Do, you know, where are we going to go? Who are we going to do? Getting to know each other, the, you know, as you reveal yourselves to each other sexually, yeah, it yeah. just feels risky and dangerous, even if it's the most sort of boy-girl vanilla kind of relationship right. on the planet. It still feels like you're taking risks and jumping hurdles. Yeah, because, yeah, you're just getting to know each other. Yeah, and you're yeah. getting over those obstacles. Once you've overcome all those obstacles, there's yeah. no challenge anymore. Right. It doesn't feel like a game anymore. And that might be exactly what you're into, is that feeling of... And how um, do you get that feeling back? You have to get a new partner. You have to, you or, have to end this relationship, find space, or you have to artificially create those obstacles, right. reinstall them in your relationship. Yeah, I do that with just, you know, fighting over nothing. Right. <laughs> a lot of people do that. A lot of people will... <laughs> We'll uh, pick a fight yeah. so they can have the breakup sex. Because then but, you have to overcome the obstacle of the conflict. But they don't know they're doing that. You're telling me that people do that on purpose? I can't imagine. I don't think people that, know they're doing it on purpose, right. but I think people do I, do I, it I, subconsciously I'm, on purpose. Sure, yeah, I'm very, I'm very aware that uh, you know having an argument over bullshit is foreplay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm very. Uh, can you be do something subconsciously on purpose, or your subconscious well, I think you have is just pa- taking We over. have patterns. And then yeah. when it, when you, you know either you're going to call yourself out on that or not. Like if you keep doing this, like oh she's crying now I've got to make it right, and then we're going to have that amazing sex, and this is the third time this month. Mm-hmm. At some point you got to realize like well this is a kind of a, a sick thing I'm into, and I don't know how to disarm it because if you're stuck in that pattern and you're not aware of it and it's not a discussion, then eventually they'll leave. And then yeah. you're going to have to start over again. Eventually, you'll pick the breakup level fight. Sure. By accident, the, yeah. when you were just hoping for the breakup level. Well, yeah, job. it's all the, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I don't think you're ever hoping for that. I mean, I think that's a sad part of that dynamic. So when, okay, so you go out with a few women and, in high school, and then you decide that that's when you come out after mm-hmm. that shit. You're like, this ain't going to happen. Because I imagine that if you chose to be honest with your parents, the idea of lying to a girl uh, that your dating just was consuming. You have a, a moral yeah, compass. I got, on I got rid of those. I got, you know, I ended those relationships, or they had run their course. Are you friends with any of them still? No, no, because no, I they, wouldn't you know, even know where they are. Really? Well, some. Uh, I mean, I think some women seem to be that woman. Like they, they date gay guys until they, you know, they run out. I of didn't them. date those women. No, you know, we could as a gay teenager. I knew who the fag hags were. Yeah, and to date a fag hag was to kind of out yourself as a fag, and I was very concerned with not being. Does that happen a lot? Do do fag hags date gay men? Oh yeah, yeah. There's actually a study out of the uh, University of British Columbia, I think, yeah. that showed that gay kids were at higher risk for unplanned pre- teenage pregnancies than non-gay kids. Huh? B- 
because we would get in, you know, I had a pregnancy scare with my girlfriend uh-huh. where she missed her period. And uh-huh. I was like, oh my God. No, no. Pretending you're Andy Gibb isn't a form of birth control. <laughs> Who knew? Pretending that was Andy Gibb's ass didn't, didn't prevent you from ovulating. <laughs> but like gay kids will sometimes act out sexually to prove that they're straight and take more risks than straight kids who don't have to prove they're straight to anybody. And that's what I was doing when I was 15 years old. And I imagine there's also an immediacy uh, to it because you have to, you don't really want to be there to begin with. So once you're up, you're like, let's get this going. Let's bang this out. Yeah, exactly. I'm just here to prove a point. I'm not here to enjoy myself. <laughs> I'm ready. Come on. But give you, to give you an idea how weird it was for me to be an out teenager when I came out, and how unlikely that was. You know, now you, I get letters from people whose kids are coming out to them at 11 and 12 and 13 yeah. years old, which blows my mind. I came out at 18, then I went to college. And yeah. I was in a theater program, downstate Illinois, where uh, after this other guy left, I was the only out gay guy in the acting program at the University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana. The only fag in the department. How is that possible? It wasn't possible. Everybody else was gay. They just weren't out. And all these guys that I was in this theater program with came out after college, which is how it was done then. And I was a little bit of a pariah, a little scary to the guys who were closeted. Just like I couldn't date a fag hag when I was 15 because it would kind of out me. But who were they They couldn't dating? be kind to me when I was in college because without them. Well, who, were, well, who, were they, who do they think they were fooling? I mean, who were They're they? They're an acting program, right? Right. Okay. Well, who are they dating in college? Not you. Women. They were oh. dating women. Oh, so that was that, that deep yeah. of a closet. They were doing it... 1920, what I had gotten out of my system at 15, 16. So when you graduated high school, you went into theater mm-hmm. and as an actor. Yeah. Yeah. So what happened to that dream? I wasn't very good at it. Yeah. I had I moved to Berlin with my boyfriend a years ago. I was in worked with a theater company there. When I moved to Seattle to work on the paper to help start The Stranger, I started a theater company called Greek Active. Um, you were in Berlin? Yeah, I was in West Berlin when the wall came down. I lived really? there for two years. You did that after college? Yeah. So you had a boyfriend, same one you got now? Uh, no, different one. And you went to Berlin to, like, that must have been exciting. I went to Berlin to be with my boyfriend. He, oh, he lived there? Yeah, he got a fellowship with the West German government. To get, This gives you an idea how far behind the times the U.S. is. 1989, he gets a fellowship to study arts management in West Berlin from the West German government. And I was able to get residency in a green card. To, really, that basically, the, the German Germany. equivalent of a green card. In right. 1989, we are fighting about this very issue right now. With immigration reform, right. whether the partners of gay people will be able to apply for green cards and live in the United States. I was able to do that in Germany in 1989. Yeah, there's, and you still can't do that in the United States in 2013. It's, it's sort of embarrassing how the you know, conservative, bigoted you know, contingent of our country still drives you know, social policy. It's just it's embarrassing after a certain point. It it's is like, embarrassing. Because these, all these other countries, they're fine. They're, they're, they they actually have an industrial base. People are are you know better taken care of, and we're supposed to be the example. And people are freer. The, that's what drives me crazy about the whole health care debate. Yeah. Oh, it's impacting our. You know what makes you not free? You can't quit your job because you can't afford to lose your health insurance because you have a sick child. You are now the slave of your employer. And yeah, in, and what, in Sweden, you don't have that problem, right? And you you idiots are fighting about a word you don't understand: socialism. That that you, you don't even understand it. And can't pronounce it. And can't spell it for yeah, certain. Yeah, and, and don't understand that on some level it functions. Yeah, you like your socialized fire departments and yeah. highways and and social security. Yeah. So when you were in Berlin, you what outside of the green card issue? What you what? Uh, where did your where did your politics come from? Where did it take root? Where you realize like, holy fuck. You know, I've got to fight for what's right. Well, it was the AIDS epidemic. Um, it was ACT UP. I was involved in ACT UP. It was Queer Nation. Um, 
the first thing I did politically was uh, protested uh, draft registration that Carter uh, imposed after the Iranian. Iran, this, I'm sounding. Like I did that too. We're, we're, well, no, but we were kind of the same age. I mean, I, I very quickly, you know, went out and registered as a conscientious objector, and because I was draftable at that, because we had to. But then I like did all the research I needed to do on conscientious objecting. I wrote it on my registration card. I did too, and I picketed. <laughs> yeah. I picketed the post office where we had to, to do it. That right. That was really the first thing. That's what I, I went to the post office to do that. So that was it. The first big move. Yeah. But it was, you know, for me as a gay man, it was really the AIDS epidemic that kind of goosed me politically and, and made me politically active. And what, what was the day that, so you're in Berlin, you saw the wall come down, you saw a way of life there that was different, or were you that aware of it? Uh, I was, you know... Moving to Europe after college was was an eye opener because you, yeah. you just in the United States you, growing up you just soak in this greatest country on earth bullshit. Yeah, uh, and most Americans haven't been to any other country on earth and have no frame of reference at all. Right. Yeah, and they don't know if this is true or not true, or right. provable or not provable. And when I went and lived in Germany for a while, I was like, oh yeah, we are not the greatest country on earth. There are some things that the Germans do better. Yeah, like health insurance, like public transportation like social welfare and social safety nets. And that was, for me, a real eye-opener and real, uh, you know, the, the there were people, you know, there were poor people, there were homeless people, but there wasn't the kind of grinding, horrendous poverty that just destroyed people and chewed people up. And right. Rich people paid their taxes, and part of what they paid for was the ability to walk down the street and live in a world where, um, you know, everybody else was treated decently. And that really that really had an impact on me. Right. So, in that, when when did your dream of uh, theater die? <laughs> After my stupid sex advice column took off, I moved to Seattle, started yeah. a theater called Greek Active. What was which that? Greek Active is slang, old gay code for "I will fuck you in the ass." Right. I'm Greek Active. Yeah. And you would see personal ads in the '60s and '70s that say "Greek Active" or "Greek Passive," and that meant I fuck ass or I get fucked in the ass. So we called our theater company because the first play we did was um, was a Greek tragedy. Uh, we called it Greek Active just for the delight of seeing that the name of our theater company in the headlines of all the reviews in the daily papers. <laughs> who, of people who didn't know what yeah. it meant. Right. Greek Active announces yeah. um, Greek Active Triumphs. That yeah. was a great headline yeah. one day. Yeah, it always does for us. Um, and we did all these, you know, we did all these plays and the theater was really successful, but uh, the co- the column was taking off. I was directing all the plays. What was the angle of it? What was the, I mean, did you do anything differently? I mean, were you doing we gay We did a lot of like plays? queer shit. Uh, we did a production of Macbeth where all the female parts are played by men and all the uh, male parts played by women. Right. Um, we just did kind of comedy takes on a lot of Shakespearean tragedy. We did a Saint production of St. Joan, uh-huh. um, Morning Becomes Electra, which is a play by O'Neill that set after the Civil War. We set it after the Vietnam War and uh-huh. it was all just kind of like... So you had a, a, it definitely had a, a socially active bent. Yeah. And what and were it was, audiences It was like? also the 90s. It was the height of the you know people dying uh, in the gay community and a lot of people in the company had HIV and some people were sick and so all we did was comedies and the the lo- the, the motto of the theater was my life is a, is a fucking drama make me laugh. Right. It's just so that oh, this yeah, was yeah, escapism. Yeah. Right. Um, but then it, it reached a point where I couldn't write the co- I couldn't do the writing I was doing and you know started writing books and do the theater and how'd you get the go. opportunity to write the column um I met Tim Keck who founded the onion yeah uh Tim Keck and Chris Johnson were the founders of the onion those two guys invented writing bullshit in the AP style that was their thing yeah um and they sold the onion and Tim moved to Seattle to start the stranger and he was telling me I'm going to do this paper and I looked at him and said oh you should have an advice column because everybody reads those yeah and he said why don't you write it yeah and I wasn't angling for the gig so yeah I was shocked when he said that, and I started writing it. What was the original column like? 
<laughs> the original idea was I was the salutation. Every letter began with "Hey faggot," and then there'd be the question and then my answer. Um, although the column was always called "Savage Love," and the idea was I was going to treat straight people and straight relationships with yeah. the same revulsion and contempt that like little old lady advice columnists sure, always sure. treated gay people yeah, and gay yeah, sex yeah. with. Yeah. It's going to be like, ew, straight people and straight sex, gross. But here's some advice. Yeah. And it turned out that straight people really loved being treated with this kind of contempt. Uh-huh. Why? Because it's, it's sort of like a white It was a man's... new experience for them, not stri- for us. It was right. totally like, whoa, what is this contempt? I've never been on the receiving end of this. So it's like a straight man's burden kind of thing. Like, yeah. you know, like, you know, they were, you know, well, we deserve this. So and <laughs> I started getting letters and then it took off. It was going to be a joke. I was going to do it for six months or a year. And then my ex-boyfriend and I were going to move back to Berlin. Uh, and we broke up and I was stuck in Seattle and the column took off and then other papers started picking it up and it got syndicated and then I got a book deal and I was like, oh my God, I am now stuck. You're the guy. Yeah. You're the savage love guy. I know. And I have my husband to thank uh, for the longevity of the column because I met him when the column was three years old. Yeah. And it was sort of the, you know, that 90s boom in sex columns, Anko Rankovich or whatever her name was in Esquire and Candace Bushnell and there was this kind of boom of, of sex columnists and I was one of them. Um, they're all gone and I'm still there because I don't write about my own sex life. Whereas most of those other columnists, they wrote a lot about their own sex life. And when I, when I, three, three years into it, I was writing a lot about my own sex life. And then I met my husband, Terry, and he said, well, you can write about your sex life or you can have a sex life with me, but you cannot have a sex life with me and write about your sex life. You didn't want to be public. No. That's and so I stopped writing about my sex life. And I think that is why Savage Love has had the longevity that it's had because it's not about me. And all those other ones that were completely driven by their sex life probably have ended up leveling off at some point. Yeah, they, you run out of, you break trust with the reader because at a certain point the reader's like, yeah. How much could this be? Yeah, true? how many yeah. relationships can you have? And yeah, yeah, is this yeah. something that's genuine that right. you're actually interested in experiencing? You're just like churning for column fodder. Right. And because my column fodder is the readers, I never had to seem to be reaching right. around or anything else to, right. to, to get to a column. I never kind of broke faith with my readers. They never lost their trust in me. Well, talk about a, a little bit about the, you, you know, when ACT UP came to, uh, to organize and that, how that, you know, the fury of that thing defined you. Well, people were dying and nobody gave a fuck. You know, it was uh, Reagan. 81. 81, 82, ACT UP didn't get started, I think, till 86, 87. The first reports were like 80, 81, right? Yeah. Uh, Mysterious Cancer, Seeming right. Gay Man, the report right. in the New York Times. Um, thousands and thousands of people died in horrendous and gruesome ways, and nobody gave a shit because it was just facts. People you knew. Yeah. Uh, early boyfriends and, um, you know, I just remember the terror years. Yeah. That 83, 84, when everybody was standing around in gay bars saying, oh, yeah, I have to be really careful, but no one was changing their behavior yet. Um, that really that long. Yeah. It took, it took a while, <laughs> uh, to turn off the blowjob spigot for yeah. some folks. Yeah. And you know, people started getting sick, people started dying and there was no response from the government. And you know, we had the, what was that? Legionnaire's disease. Right. Uh, you know, ridiculous. A hundred yeah. folks died and from a boat or something or a hotel, a hotel, a yeah, yeah, yeah. hundred legionnaires died and the government kicked into action to figure out what the hell was going on and to fix sure. this and make sure this would stop. Um, 100 legionnaires, you know, gay men in their 20s and 30s and 40s were suddenly dying by the thousands yeah. and nothing was being done. Huh. And the government couldn't respond. And Reagan, you know, it took him seven years to even say the word AIDS. And by then, tens of thousands of Americans were dead. It was, uh, you know, 9-11 times 30 right. at that point. And 
you just felt so betrayed, you know, felt so abandoned and lost. Again. Yeah, by your country. But you, now you're abandoned by your country before you're abandoned by culture and by your parents. By your and faith. By, yeah, everything. And this was kind of the, the last straw. People used to say, before, you know, when people like Harvey Milk were encouraging people to come out, that, you know, Har- uh, Harvey Firestein wrote this in uh, one of his plays. It wouldn't be great if every gay man, you know, would turn purple one day because then they would see how many of us there are and how many of us they know and love. And then along comes HIV and a whole bunch of gay men turned purple one day, got Carposi sarcoma, got lesions that were purple. And, you know, once you can't hide, you have to fight. And that's kind of what happened to the gay community in the late 80s and early 90s. You could no longer hide. Um, guys who were sick could not hide. And guys who were not sick yet felt like I'm going to be sick sooner or later. But that so I might have... as well come out fighting now rather than waiting until I'm too sick to fight. Well, that's good that they did that in the sense that, you know, obviously, but I, I imagine within the gay community, there was still this sort of denial initially. Oh, yeah. There's that... a great book by Randy Schultz called And the Band Played On. Yeah. Um, you know, that metaphor from the Titanic, the band is playing as the ship is sinking. Sure. That there were all these people uh, in the gay community who were, what's the word? Um, complicit in a way in how long it took the gay community to respond and and to realize what exactly what was going on. And, and people will say, you can't tell people that they have to come out. You know, no, you can't. No, you don't have to come out. But you have to accept that if you are not out and you are gay, that that is a moral failing, that you have fallen short, that you have failed people and you have failed yourself and you have failed this wider community of which you are. A part and you believe that too. Absolutely. I don't believe in outing unless you're talking about somebody who is, you know, a Ted Haggard or a Larry Craig. Uh, but, you know, out some fucking dentist who's lying to his wife gives a shit. Right. But if you are not out, right. you, unless you have some very good reason, and, you know, you're 15 years old, you're growing up on some Mormon compound in Utah somewhere, and your parents are shitty, and you're, you might wind up homeless if you come up, you have a good reason to wait to sure, come out later. Sure. You're 25, 30 years old, you're a, you know, you're a lawyer, you're, you're, you're set, you're no longer dependent on your parents in any way. And you're not out. You're just a fucking coward and a part of the problem. It's. I think it's interesting too because it seems that you know within the community and also on the other side, you know, of, of the straight world is that you know we there's a constant need for for the straight world to pigeonhole gay people specifically as gay, mm-hmm. as opposed to like there are gay Republicans, there are gay assholes, there are. Gay- <laughs> there's a lot of overlap. That gay asshole, gay Republican thing is a yeah. Venn diagram that's just a fucking circle <laughs> when you look at it. But that that gay people are just you know they're it's not that is not what that is not the top of the what they are. That 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 is just uh, you know that's what they that's. But you know life. what we need to identify that as the top of who we are right now because it is for that reason that we are discriminated against. It is for that reason we didn't make gay the most important thing about us. Straight people made gay the most important thing about us. When straight people said we're going to discriminate against you, throw you out of the army, not allow you to be married, we're going to make sure that your lives are really circumscribed, and we're going to fuck with you. It's not like gay people said, "Hey, we're gay people." Uh, and this is the most important thing about us. Straight people identified a gay as the most important thing about us and the reason to discriminate against us. But that was – and because out of reaction for that, that was why the gay community initially, you know, amped up the sex uh, uh, publicly. Perhaps. I, I mean, think it was just after centuries, 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 millennia of oppression. But now that's – Once there was this sense of sexual freedom and possibility, it just exploded. Right. In the 70s. Right. But that was necessary in order for the community to sort of define itself. It was this adolescence and it was this great coming right. together. And, it, you know, it cemented a lot of bonds. You, you know, Eric Rofus is this gay writer who wrote a lot about um, that. He wrote this book called Dry Bones Breathe uh, about, you know, promiscuity and it's what was good about it. And, and you know, this like band of brothers who were right. all sort of sexually linked in those relationships. 
Um, so there was good in it, but it was, you know, as Gabriel Rotella wrote in Sexual Ecology, unsustainable biologically <laughs> over the long haul, as we've seen. But now the evolution is that, you know, when a basketball player comes out, and it's it's good because it's no longer about the sex as much it is, as it is about, like, hey, we're your neighbor. You know, we're in your family. We're you. Hey, we're seven foot tall, and we weigh 250 pounds, and we could kick your ass. Exactly. Yeah. Good, good. So that's the, that's the cultural dialogue now. Yeah, I mean, it's the final, it, it's the last bastion. It's the last, you know, citadel that we're storming. And you're uh, optimistic. Oh, absolutely. We're winning. Yeah. We're winning. You know, we're sitting here in Minneapolis, or Minnesota achieved marriage equality yesterday, and today Brazil achieved marriage equality, became the 15th country uh, on earth with uh, full equality for, for, for same-sex couples. And how long have you been married? Uh, I've been with Terry for 18 years and married for eight. And when you got married, that was in the first wave? Um, we ran up to British Columbia to get married eight years ago. Uh-huh. Um, so before. Yeah. And then we got married again in Washington State. We renewed our vows in Washington State when marriage came to Washington. So now, now so that's solid. So what are the what is offered to you as a married couple in Washington State? A massive tax bill. <laughs> You're supposed to get a tax break. Oh, no, no, no. Because right now, with taxes, what the government says is... Uh-huh. Because you're married, you have to file as community property. But because you are not married, you're not allowed to file jointly. So we get taxed doubly. So you haven't got the rights on that level? No, we don't. We actually had a tax bill this year, which was basically our son's college education wiped out because Terry doesn't have a vagina. Taxes we wouldn't have had to pay if Terry had a vagina. And he won't get one no matter how often I beg. Around <laughs> April, April, April 10th, April 11th every year, I'm like, honey, <laughs> get a a sex change, and then we won't have to pay this. <laughs> you're not, you're you legally a woman. We could file jointly. I don't want him to get a vagina in place of his penis. Like, like, he'd have to get a vagina like on his hip or behind his knee or somewhere else. Somewhere Maybe I don't just look a tattoo at of a vagina <laughs> would, would work. <laughs> Maybe that would pass muster with Antonio Scalia. Maybe that'd be good enough for him. <laughs> just have a tattooed vagina just in between your cock and your belly button. Oh my God. But w- now that's another interesting thing because I've gotten flack from the transgender community a little bit. Like As two, have I. Like two listeners mm-hmm. uh, because I'm insensitive. The place we have to get to is that, including the queer community, including the gender queer community and the, the trans activists and everybody else, is that there are you know predominant gender norms and most people are comfortable existing within them. Right. Um, the problem isn't that these gender norms exist. The problem is that people who depart from them, who aren't comfortable existing within them or that isn't who they are, are stigmatized and persecuted. And I think we need to get to a place where we accept that, you know, the gender norms are, you know, pretty standard and most people are comfortable at either end of the gender binary, as they call it. But those people, you know, boys who like to play with dolls and girls who like to play with trucks and girls with beards and boys who are really effeminate, they shouldn't be, and men, adult men who are really effeminate uh, or are transgendered, they shouldn't be stigmatized or brutalized, and they are for violating these the, this, this gender code that exists in our culture. Well, and I think that because of those cultural norms, when, when you disarm things or you, you make fun of them, that it's very easy to detach from the feelings of that person. The, the mistake I think that people make when they get in your face. Or tra- even using the word tranny. Which you're not allowed to use anymore. Which yeah. which is crazy because it was widely embraced in the queer community. Even queer was controversial for a while. And then a secret memo went out in Transland saying this is now a hate term. This is our letter of the alphabet hyphen word word. Like N word and F word and but you, but you use the word fag and you fought for the word fag. You enjoy the word fag. Right. I love the word fag. <laughs> But there's you probably get flack for that. I do still. I do from some folks. Yeah, and I'm not a hypocrite. You yeah. know, some people, some trans people said I was. You know, I'd use tranny in my column or let people use it yeah. in my column. 
And they would say that was hypocritical. And I was like, no, it's not. I've defended comedians who've used the word faggot. Yeah. If I was like, if I fell down on the floor and cried every time someone said faggot and then I threw tranny or dyke around, then I'm a hypocrite. Right. But I actually, you know, I agree with Queer Nation back in the day. The way we take these words and make them not hurtful is to own them, own them, eat them, uh, yeah. make them ours. Like we have with queer, which yeah. used to be hugely controversial. And right. That was generally widely accepted. And now, you know, I can say queer without having any exactly. fear at all. Without but, me throwing my tea in your face. Right. But fag, I, not, not so really. Just That's, I know, but it's still your word. I mean, I can't, <laughs> I can't. lend it to you. Yeah, but, but are you gonna are you gonna defend me when I get in trouble? Oh, absolutely, I've defended people who've used, <laughs> you know. I don't need to use it because some people get a you know people, when I go on Mar, people will like write me angry emails because Bill Mar does sometimes sort of mine homophobia and and heterosexual male discomfort with gay sex for laughs, and that's not okay. I think that's great, and I think that's necessary when he does it. It's when, real. It's real, but it also it Mar owns it and. And, and this is a point of tension. And the more we can talk about it and laugh about it, it, it actually helps. And part of what I think, like people like Marr and um, uh, the guy with the radio show, Howard Stern, yeah. are doing is they're make the joke has shifted to them. The joke is their discomfort and weirdness. Well, that's about but that's sex. what it, well, that's a lot of times what humor. It, it not all humor is bullying. Not all humor no, is agree. hate. A I lot agree. of humor is like, yeah, I don't know what to do. And I'm with squicked this. out by this. And I'd rather I'd rather like have straight. I know I'm squicked out by cunnilingus. Yeah. I can't think of anything. When I was fucking girls, that did not happen. You cannot pretend your girlfriend. <laughs> is Andy Gibb with your face pressed into her vagina. This yeah. is my boyfriend, Andy Gibb, with a yeah. terrible gunshot wound. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, Steve. Yeah. No, and and I so I, I, if I can, as a gay man, talk about that kind of discomfort with, like, straight sex, I think that gay, it helps to have straight guys be able to, like, talk about that discomfort. And then you have somebody like Mar or Stern or almost all comedians yeah. who exist on the planet they're a little squicked out by gay sex these straight guys yeah, but we all have gay friends and we're all we, and yeah, you're for weird. gay rights yeah, and that's a right. really important thing to model that you can own your because some people go from gay sex squicks me out to I'm opposed to gay rights gay marriage gay people adopting gay anything because gay sex is icky and I think it's important to have people out there going yeah gay sex kind of freaks me out does seem a little icky but I am on the side of gay people sure. and the problem is me is right. my There's discomfort not between, that gay people shouldn't exist you making fear hate and just being like, no, oh, she's a cock. I, I don't know. I can't. <laughs> it's like, really? I, in I your ass? It. You yeah. put one of those things in your right ass? Right in there with another dude? I don't know. It's not for me, but uh, knock yourself same, out. And I feel the same way about yeah. straight sex. But gay people haven't oppressed straight people for centuries, so it exists in a different context. Yeah. That said, um, I think it's a waste of time when organizations like GLAD, which under the new – there's a new guy running GLAD, and he's yeah. not doing this anymore. Policing, you know, going after David Spade – going after uh, what's her face it just it's a waste of time and, and it makes you, gay people seem ridiculously thin-skinned it also is i i think part of the 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 need for outlets of any kind whether they're they're uh, supposedly for for activist causes to generate drama in order to get attention Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, sometimes you got to ask, like, well, is this really, are you really working for the cause? You're just looking for some attention here. I don't know. Or are you being a douchebag? Well, yeah, that, you know, that goes right in with attracting attention, doesn't it? Yeah. So as a father, uh, what are the challenges that, that you, uh, you've had to deal with as a gay couple, you know, bringing up a boy? We, you know, we've never really encountered any... Uh, discrimination. We've never really encountered any assholery on the, and we've we haven't sought it out, but we've been in places where, you know, we know that there, we must have been interacting with people who disapproved, 
You know, right. Terry's from Spokane, Washington. We go home to visit his family. We've driven to Michigan and back from our house in Seattle. We right. know we've interacted with people who, you know, probably would vote against same-sex relationships and disapprove of gay adoption. And no one's ever would be been very a- pleasant to you. To yeah, your no one's been ever ever been anything but very kind to us. Right. Um, and that gives me hope. But right? yeah, how about, on, how about on just a parenting level? I mean, yeah. within the home, uh, it's been fine. Um, you know, we are facing the same challenges I think a lot of people with teenagers at home face. And uh, how old a, is he? He's fifteen uh-huh. and a freshman in high school. Uh-huh. And we, you know, are facing the same. You know, a little too much on the Instagram, a little too much uh, partying in the high school environment. Ugh. Yeah, uh, and we're on him about it. But the, you grew the up challenge with that. is he's a straight. He's a, you know he's a straight boy. Yeah. With Gay dads, not just gay dads, you, like the gayest, the gayest of dads, <laughs> You're right? And and Terry's pretty fucking gay too. Yeah. Um. And so you know he's got a, you know he's defining everyone defines themselves in opposition to their parents to some extent, but he's really having to assert himself in a way so that his friends understand that just because I have gay dads, oh really, doesn't so he, mean. So he's overcompensating like a, a closeted gay kid. <laughs> 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 so oh can, my god so you can to I it. hadn't even thought of it that way maybe he is <laughs> the funniest thing happened we were he's you're, a, you're his secret guy he's there. a snowboarder uh-huh. and, uh, I learned to snowboard so we all go snowboarding together and Terry snowboards um, and we were away at a snowboarding trip and we you know we brought a couple of his little douchey snowboard straight thuggy <laughs> friends with snowboarding and they I'm were, glad you're not biased in any way oh no no they're not douchey because they're straight yeah. they're douchey because they're teenage boys right, all right. teenage boys go through yeah, yeah. douchedom oh, just yeah. some never emerge right. from douchedom yeah, they all go yeah. through it it's like puberty you go through douchedom just yeah. like you go through puberty and they're sitting around a table and Terry and I are like cleaning up the kitchen we made dinner and one looks at DJ and goes so you're going to be gay when you grow up your parents are gay so you're going to be gay yeah and there's like this pause and Terry and I looked at the guy, I can't, and we're like, I can't believe this shitty kid is saying this. <laughs> yeah. When we just fed him dinner, it's like, yeah, I'm so yeah, yeah. And uh, this is pause and DJ goes, yeah, my parents, they're gay. Yeah. But their parents were straight, like your parents. Yeah. So I guess you're going to be gay. And we didn't know what to do at that moment. We were like, okay, that was really homophobic, but really kind of awesome. Yeah. <laughs> You know, DJ, that kid got homophobic in DJ's face about his family, and DJ yeah. got homophobic back in his face about his family and threw it at him. And I'm like, we're just going to leave this alone. We're going to tiptoe out of the room and uh-huh. pretend we didn't fucking hear those. <laughs> and that, and that was it? Yeah. That's beautiful. Well, it was great talking to you, Dan. Thanks. I think, it was a blast. I, I think we did good. This is your third book? That was my seventh book. Oh, my God. I know, right? I I've been at this more for research, more. yeah. What's the new one? Well, how is it different than the other ones? Oh, I don't know. Uh, it's in it's in French. It's called American Savage. It's yeah. about politics, gay marriage. It's also about uh, healthcare, pot, assisted suicide, snowboarding. So not just gay stuff. Not just gay stuff. Okay. Not just Andy Gibb with a gunshot wound. Uh, that was a good one. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. <laughs> and and the and Savage Love is the podcast. Uh, Savage Love is my column. It's a and the Savage Lovecast is my podcast, which is at www.savagelovecast.com. And I want to invite you to come on and give sex advice with me sometime. I can do that, I think. You're up in Seattle to perform every once in a while. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if my advice will be any good. I don't know if my advice is any good. Well, what is the most most common thing you get from straight guys? Oh, my God. Uh, How do I get girls to have sex with me? How do I get my girlfriend to have a three-way with another girl? Um, How do I get laid? Pretty standard. Pretty standard. And pretty, in a way sad <laughs> why 
Because guy, straight guys are just afraid to ask because they're afraid to hear no. Everyone's afraid to ask. I'm not a straight guy. I think it's a gay guy and a straight girl and yeah. a bi person thing. Yeah. People are afraid to get rejected. Sure. Um, especially young straight guys who, you know, they have that burden of mastery on their shoulders. Sure. They have to be like good at it and have yeah. swagger. Yeah. And rejection really can take the air out of your sails. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, but the sooner you're, you embrace rejection, you know, the sooner you get to know, then you, the sooner you've moved on to, to some girl who might be a yes. Yeah. And that's just hard for a lot of people to wrap their heads around. That wow. That's it's better, instead of like weaseling around and yeah. realizing you're in the friend zone or whatever, just ask the direct question. Will you fuck me? Not, well, if you're gay, you, that is literally the question that you can, you can put it that way if you're gay. You can't put it that way if you're a straight guy. You want to hang out? You want to hang out? You want to go on a date? Yeah, like yeah. A date date? Yeah. If the answer is no, don't be friends. Right. Yeah. Don't be a weasel. Exactly. Why? Well, okay, I made note of that. But you know, advice. You look it up in the dictionary. It says opinion about what could or should be done. I'll gladly come on. You your don't show. have to have any qualifications to give advice. I you will, just have to run your mouth. I, no That's problem. I, 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 I can do that. Thanks, man. That's it. That's our show. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. Love that guy. So what do I got to tell you? Go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF pod needs. Check the calendar. See where I'm playing. Leave a comment. Kick in a few shekels. I don't know if there's any more left of that MTV shirt that I did. Got more mugs coming. Check out the Lipson deal. Get the app. Get the app. There's only 50 at any given time free episodes of this show. The rest, you got to get the app and the free app, then upgrade to the premium app. Get some uh, JustCoffee.coop. Get the WTF land, a little back end on that. Going to be doing some more stuff on that website. Coming soon. Stuff. Okay? All right? Okay. Boomer lives! <laughs>